Lord our God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that all of it is God-breathed and is of use in training us and rebuking us, uh, correcting us, teaching us, in making us the people that you desire us to be. And we pray that you would use uh, this passage this morning and uh, my words uh, by your Spirit to help us do just that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, I wonder if you've heard the story about the young man who went out to visit his grandfather. Uh, His grandfather was a farmer on a rather remote farm somewhere in the West Country. They had no running water and no electricity. Uh, His grandfather was not a man renowned for his uh, personal habits of hygiene, shall we say. But nevertheless, his grandson thought that he ought to go and visit him, so off he did. He uh, got in his car. Uh, set off. He arrived in time for lunch. Anyway, as they were setting, sitting down for lunch, uh, the grandson noticed that the plates were perhaps not as clean as they might be. Uh, he didn't particularly want to eat off them if he could avoid it, so he asked his grandfather, Grandfather, are you sure that these plates are really clean? His grandfather was rather cross, as he might be, suggesting that these plates uh, were dirty. And he snapped back, well, of course they're clean. They're as clean as cold water can get them. (laughs) Okay, grandson thought, fine. They ate their meal. They had a lovely afternoon all together. They came back in time for supper. And and the same thing happened. Uh, Grandfather got out uh, the plates and they prepared the table. As they sat down, the grandson had the sneaking suspicion that the uh, cutlery and the crockery wasn't quite as clean as it could be. Well, you know what's coming, don't you? He asked his grandfather the same thing. Grandfather, are you sure these plates are really clean? Grandfather said the same thing. Of course they're clean. They're as clean as cold water can get them. Okay, fine. Never mind. Anyway, after supper, the son uh, got up, he uh, got his things together, and he set off, went to his car. He had to drive uh, back home. Uh, As he was getting into his car, his grandfather's dog ran out and started nipping at his ankles. Well, you can imagine how shocked he was when his grandfather shouted, Cold water, lie down. <laughs> Sorry, it's a dreadful story, isn't it? I apologise if uh, lunch is a bit close for you. <laughs> that might have put you off it. But I tell that story because it goes to show, doesn't it, it illustrates that cleanliness matters more to some people than it does to others. Or rather, I should say, people have different standards of cleanliness, don't they? Uh, You'll know that to be true, I'm sure, in your own life. If you've had children, uh, our toddler has a different idea of cleanliness to to us, for one thing. Um, There's a different standard of cleanliness, of course, if you're in a hospital as well, isn't there? I uh, went to visit somebody from Holy Trinity in hospital the other week, uh, and uh, they were sort of in the middle of uh, some kind of uh, alert, and I had to really scrub myself clean before I was able to go into the ward and uh, to to go and visit them. Uh, Cleanliness matters. It really matters to God. And that is really the message at the heart of the passage uh, in front of us. Because Leviticus chapter 16 is uh, kind of God's instructions, as it were, for the annual spring clean of the Israelites. Uh, Not a spring clean physically, but a spring clean spiritually. An internal spring clean, if if you like to think of it like that. Uh, The day of atonement, the day when God's people would cleanse their hearts and be made spiritually clean uh, for God. Uh, I think it was L.P. Hartley, wasn't it, who started the go-between by saying that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. 
Well, if it was true in the go-between, it is supremely true in Leviticus, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't just feel like a foreign country. Frankly, it feels like a foreign planet. It's like Mars. Uh, we read through Leviticus, and uh, it, it just feels so foreign, so alien. Uh, all this talk of ritual, all this talk of blood, all this talk of sacrifices. I mean, it just seems a world away from where we are here today. And yet, as I've been uh, reading this passage over the last couple of weeks, I think it's a lot closer to us than we might first uh, imagine. After all, the God of whom it speaks is the same God that we are gathered here to worship today. It's the same God that we love and serve. The people to whom it speaks are people who have the same basic needs as you and me. How to get right with a holy God. The key difference, as we shall see, though, is that whilst the people to whom it's originally addressed are looking forward to something, we stand on the other side looking back. Because at the heart of Leviticus, and supremely at the chapter that we're looking at this morning, is the news that there is a loving God who has stepped into our world to do what we could never do for ourselves. Uh, If you've uh, been with us over the last few weeks at Trinity, you'll know that we're doing a series uh, in Lent as we approach Easter, looking at how Easter is uh, prefigured in the Old Testament. We're calling it Shadows of the Cross. Uh, Because, of course, uh, Easter was always God's plan. It was plan A. It wasn't plan B. He didn't come up with it on a whim. It was always his plan. And there are shadows and echoes of it all through the Old Testament before the Lord Jesus arrived. And Leviticus chapter 16 uh, is one of them. Well, there are lots of ways uh, that we could approach this passage this morning. It is a complicated passage, but I want to approach it under three headings uh, today. Uh, Firstly, I think we see the result of sin, which is separation. Secondly, we see the remedy for sin, which is sacrifice. And thirdly, we see the removal of sin, which is by a scapegoat. Let's look at the first of those, uh, first of all, shall we? Do you mind moving the slide on, Dave? Thank you very much. The results of sin, which is separation. Well, it's impossible, isn't it, to uh, overlook uh, the seriousness with which this chapter starts uh, as God speaks to uh, Moses. At verse 1, we're told the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. It's in the context of, of death, the ultimate tragedy. At the death of the two sons of Aaron, why did they die? Well, it wasn't of natural causes. They died, we're told, because they tried to come near to God. They tried to approach a holy God. And God's warning to Aaron is that on no account must he casually enter into the place in the tent where God himself was said to dwell. Uh, Nobody could just, you can't just wander into God's presence and expect to get away with it. No, instead he must undergo complex and lengthy preparations. And we can see that, can't we, as we glance through uh, the chapter. Uh, Aaron must bring a bull and a ram as offerings. He needs to have a bath. Uh, He needs to put on the special uh, priestly tunic that he was to wear. Uh, He must sacrifice the animals. He must make an offering for himself and then for his family. Uh, Having done all that, he's then to turn to the people and to uh, take two goats from the community and a ram to offer on uh, their behalf. Uh, The goats, he's to present to God. He's to draw lots to decide what happens to them. Uh, One of them will be sacrificed, another one will be kept as a scapegoat. Well, it all sounds uh, rather a lot, doesn't it? 
And yet even that actually isn't enough. Because once the sacrifices have been made, we're told that Aaron is to enter into the holy place in the tent. And he's to do so, bringing with him, we're told, verse 12, a censer of burning coals and two handfuls of incense. Why? Well, he is to burn uh, that incense. Because when he burns, it will produce smoke. And the smoke will act as a kind of smoke screen, quite literally, to protect him uh, from God. It will mean that the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is concealed. It's protection for Aaron. Verse 13, we're told, so that he will not die. You remember going through the Old Testament, there is that theme that anyone who sees God cannot live. And it's because of this. It is to protect Aaron from a holy God. Well, it all seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? It's a bit, a bit, a bit elaborate, a bit, a bit, just a, a, bit, a bit too complicated, a bit unnecessary, a bit over the top. Why, why, do, why the need for all this faffing around? Well, the need is clear if we read on in the chapter to verse 16. God says, why does atonement need to be made? Because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. It is because God's people have turned their back on God. They have rejected him. They have rebelled against him. They have sinned. They've rejected God and his ways, and a holy God cannot simply overlook this and pretend that it hasn't happened. A holy God cannot dwell with an unholy people. To overlook sin is to uh, compromise God's purity and his uprightness, his character. A holy God cannot dwell with an unholy people. And it's a truth that the Bible expresses consistently, actually, from uh, start to finish. You might remember the, uh, the, from the start of the Bible in uh, Genesis, uh, God created Adam and Eve to live in his creation, and they turned their back on him. They rejected him. They, they turned against his word, and immediately what happened? They were cast out of Eden. They were separated uh, from him. From then on, before then, they'd enjoyed perfect communion, perfect relationship with the Lord. They'd walked with him in the cool of the garden. It could be so uh, no longer. And that's the story of the Bible. Uh, God's people separated uh, from him. Uh, Separated because of their sin. Uh, Jesus reminded the, uh, the religious leaders of his day of that very truth when he reminded them that it's what comes out of our hearts that really matters because it pollutes us. Uh, all those nasty, horrible things that come spewing out of us, it finds its origin in our hearts. And it's the problem of sin. It's the natural fruit of the human heart, which is evil, and it defiles us, frankly. And we cannot approach a holy God unless it is dwelt, dealt with. You might have seen in the news uh, just recently, there's been concern, hasn't there, over rising levels of pollution in our cities. Uh, it's, uh, we've been aware of it, I guess, but scientists are becoming particularly aware that it's becoming a lot more acute than I think we've realised in uh, previous uh, generations. Uh, if pollution levels rise to a certain level, cities become uninhabitable. Uh, humans can't dwell there. Well, if it's true for human beings, it's even more true for God. A holy God, a clean, perfectly pure God, cannot dwell with a polluted people. Well, if that's the great problem, then that requires a remedy. And it begs the question, what's going to happen? How is God going to deal with this? And that leads us to our second heading. The remedy for sin, which Leviticus tells us is sacrifice. 
as we've already hinted, there, there is a, 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 there's a dilemma at the heart of this passage. God is a holy God who cannot dwell with an unholy people. He's also a just God. He cannot let sin simply go unpunished. He cannot overlook it. And yet at the same time, he is a loving God who longs to be in a relationship with his people. How can all this be squared? How can God remain true to his character and to his purposes and still uh, deal with his people's sin? Well, the answer of Leviticus, and it's repeated through the rest of the Bible, is very simple. It is through sacrifice. It is through sacrifice that human beings can be reconciled to God, or that they can put another way, as Leviticus puts it, there can be atonement. Atonement is a kind of compound word, at-one-ment. It simply means reconciliation, effectively, at its most simplest. Uh, Restoration of a relationship. And we can see that very clearly as we glance through uh, Leviticus chapter 16, can't we? Uh, by my count, there are four rituals outlined by God for Aaron to make atonement by blood. The first one's for himself and his family, I think it's verse 6, verse 11. Secondly, there's one for the holy place, uh, verse 16, verse 20. Uh, thirdly, there's one for the altar itself, that's verse 20 again. And finally, it's for all the people of God, verse 24 and verse at 33. Now it's true that in detail the rituals differ. They're not absolutely identical. But there are two elements that remain common to all, to all of them. There is an essential requirement that there's an animal that's sacrificed as a substitute and that there's a requirement that, that, bl- that the animal's blood is shed. So there's two, two requirements. There's an animal that's sacrificed as a substitute and the blood is spread, uh, is shed and sprinkled. What is it that's so significant about blood? Why this emphasis on blood in uh, Leviticus? Well, to understand why, we have to read on to uh, to Leviticus chapter 17, and you can find it in verse 11. God gives us an explanation as to why blood is so significant. He tells us, verse 11 of chapter 17, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Uh, When blood is shed, it symbolizes a life laid down on behalf of another. When blood is sprinkled, it symbolizes cleansing. It's like a spiritual detergent, if you want to use it like that. It's more, far more effective than Daz, but it's a spiritual uh, it's a detergent. Uh, in this way, through blood, sin is dealt with and relationship with God is restored. Or atonement can take place, as to use the language of uh, Leviticus. And because the sacrificial offering dies in the place of the person who has offered it, uh, God's justice is upheld, and yet his love and his mercy is wonderfully displayed. That that tension that we spoke of, that the chapter seems to imply, is resolved. And most importantly, sin is remedied through sacrifice. And yet, of course, it it isn't all, is it? Because we know that however uh, noble an animal, an animal can never fully represent a human being. Even the uh, cleverest chimpanzee is no match for the, uh, the, 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 the lowest human. 
Uh, an animal is not a straightforward substitute for a human being. And as we read on through the, uh, through the Bible into the New Testament, it's very clear that actually something else was needed because this sacrifice that Leviticus speaks of actually wasn't really fully effective. It needed uh, something else. The sacrifices on the Day of Atonement were, were a prototype, as it were, uh, for another sacrifice that was to come. Uh, when car manufacturers are uh, thinking up a new model for a car, they will design a kind of prototype or a mock-up. And it will, will, will may, may look very similar to what is to come, but it won't be the full, the full finished article. It will have some features and some elements that they want to display at some motor show or to the uh, general public, but it won't be the final finished article. And in a sense, the, the sacrifices that we see here in Leviticus are a little bit like that. They are a prototype or a kind of engineer's mock-up of what was going to happen uh, later when the Lord Jesus Christ came. And the good news as we read through the Bible is that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his finished work on the cross, that first Good Friday, fully completed the work that the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement could only point to. Here is how the writer to the Hebrews explains it for us. He says, Unlike the other high priests, he, that is Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. The Lord Jesus completed the work that the the Day of Atonement could never fully complete. When he dies in our place at the cross. You might remember, if you're familiar with the accounts of the Gospels, when uh, the Lord Jesus died, they record how the uh, temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, Why did that happen? It wasn't coincidence. It was a tangible uh, symbol of what the Lord Jesus' death had achieved. Uh, That Previously, uh, human beings had had been uh, separated from the place where God was said to dwell by the thick curtain. It was a thick curtain. It was as thick as a span of a man's hand. And it symbolized no entry. You can't just come into God's presence. When the Lord Jesus died, it was ripped in half because it was no longer needed. Human beings, through sacrifice, were reconciled to God and could have access to him. There is always something noble, isn't there, about uh, someone offering themselves up in the place of somebody else, of human sacrifice. Uh, It's a key theme of literature, isn't it? Think perhaps, for example, of the climax of Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities, where uh, Carson um, offers himself in the place of Darnay. Uh, There's always a theme, isn't it, running through literature. It's a theme in history, isn't it? I can remember as, as, uh, as a youngster being uh, enthralled by the story of, of Captain Oates and uh, Scott's last uh, expedition. You know, Captain Oates, he's uh, struck by frostbite, he crawls out of, the, out of the, the tent and takes himself away, you know, and maybe sometime uh, in order, sacrificing himself in order to give a chance of life for his companions. And it's right, isn't it, that we remember those uh, sacrifices uh, we do that uh, when it's uh, Remembrance Sunday. It's absolutely right that we remember those who've laid down their life on behalf of others. And yet, no matter how noble, uh, no matter how praiseworthy, no matter how brave, uh, none of those sacrifices could ever compare with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no sacrifice that ever comes close to the sacrifice of the cross. Uh, the Lord Jesus was an innocent victim. That could never be said of anyone else who has ever died in the place of another. 
And the Bible tells us that he was completely innocent. Even the men who put him on trial acclaimed that he was an innocent man. He should never have been there. There was no, uh, no, uh, nothing to hold him to the cross except love. He'd never done anything wrong. And yet the Bible tells us that the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. He went to the cross on behalf of you and for me. He paid the punishment that we deserved. And above all, it achieved for all time what nothing else could do. What even these sacrifices so, uh, carried out so methodically by the high priests, it achieved what they could never achieve. Reconciliation with God, atonement, paid in blood, the full and final remedy for human sin to restore us to full relationship with God. That's the remedy for sin that Leviticus points us to, sacrifice. Let's look lastly at the third aspect that we see here in Leviticus chapter 16, and it's this, the removal of sin by a scapegoat. I think if we're Bible readers, uh, then this is probably for us perhaps the most unusual, most notable aspect of this chapter. Uh, Perhaps we're familiar with the idea of sacrifice, but the idea of a scapegoat, I think, is perhaps less familiar to us. It's perhaps the most unique aspect of this book. Uh, We've seen, haven't we, that Aaron, the high priest, was instructed to take two male goats uh, from the people. Uh, One, he was to sacrifice as a sin offering. The other one, he was to preserve. He was to keep it in order that it might be the scapegoat. Uh, We're told that after completing all the the sacrificial rituals, uh, the goat was to be brought out. And the high priest was to lay his hands over it, on top of its head. And he was to confess, as he did so, all the sins of the people of Israel. And the goat would then be released, it would be sent out into the wilderness, never to return again. Uh, I'm told that uh, apparently in later sort of rabbinic writing tells us that uh, to be extra short, the goat would never come back. Sometimes they would uh, go out with a man, they would tie it to a rock, and they'd push it over a cliff to make sure it could never get back again. Uh, it sounds pretty, uh, pretty horrific, doesn't it, for us in, in our modern age? Uh, just to be sure that it could never go back. Well, we might be a bit squeamish from an animal rights perspective about that, but the picture that it conjures up for us, it couldn't be clearer, could it? As the high priest confessed the sins of the people over the goats, the burden of sin was transferred from the people onto the goat. And as the goat left the boundaries of the camp, so too the people's sin went with him. Sin physically left the camp. It left God's people. It was removed. Now, we're familiar, of course, in our day, aren't we, with the concept of a scapegoat. Quite often you'll hear in the media uh, somebody being referred to as a scapegoat. Perhaps Alex Neal might be viewed as a scapegoat for the failings of Norwich City players. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, It's not for me to to judge. But we're familiar with the concept of a scapegoat, aren't we? Uh, That is somebody who takes the blame for someone else's wrongdoing. Uh, I once saw a a cartoon where there were two employees who were arguing about a project at work that had had gone wrong. Uh, And one colleague said to the other one, I didn't say it was your fault, I just said I was going to blame you. (laughs) That's that's the idea of a scapegoat, isn't it? They're not necessarily saying it's your fault, but you're going to carry the blame for somebody else. His colleague was a scapegoat. Maybe we can relate to that idea of a scapegoat. Perhaps we've had that in our work life or in our home life. We felt like we, there's times we can look back and we think we were the scapegoat for somebody else's uh, mis- misdeeds. Who knows? But it's that idea that's at the heart of this chapter of Leviticus. 
because the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement took the blame for the people of God. Although he'd done nothing wrong, he was treated as though he had done wrong. Just an innocent goat. Hadn't done anything, just grown up among uh, God's people. Hadn't done anything. And yet he was treated as though he had done. As he left the camp, sin left with him. And once again, the, the picture of the scapegoat illustrates us wonderfully for us the truth of what Jesus' death, that first Easter, achieved for all of us who would trust in him. Again, the writer to the Hebrews explains it for us. He reminds us that Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. That's Hebrews 9, verse 28. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat by whom our sins are removed. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, sang the psalmist. And that finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophet Isaiah said it, didn't he? Uh, Famously, Isaiah 53, which we're going to look at in a few weeks' time. Uh, We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if it's been laid on him, then it's no longer on you and on me. Jesus was the scapegoat, and through his death, sin has been taken away. Uh, Not that long ago, I read a rather candid interview with a man who was the head of a psychiatric institution. And he said these words, and I think they're very revealing, actually. In the middle of this interview, he said, if I could only assure my patients of forgiveness, we could probably close tomorrow. If I could only assure my patients of forgiveness, we could probably close tomorrow. Well, you don't have to have experience of the challenges of mental health to know the truth at the heart of those words, do you? I mean, who among us does not carry with us, to some extent, the burden of things that we have done in the past? Deeds we've done, words that we've spoken, thoughts that we've had that we wish we had never have thought. If we'd only go back and undo them, in a moment we would do it. Maybe it's not just the things that we've done, it's the things that we haven't done that we should have done. The words that we should have said and we stayed silent. Perhaps the thoughts that we should have had and we know that we didn't. We can try and block them out, of course. We can try and pretend they don't exist. We can try and fill our lives with as many things as possible in order that we might forget them. But still in our darkest moments, they come back, don't they? They return to haunt us. Well, the good news of the scapegoats is that that needn't be the case for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the Lord Jesus, we don't need to carry around with us the burden of sin any longer. It has been transferred once and for all onto the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in return, all we need to carry is his easy yoke, his easy burden of grace and forgiveness. That's the exchange that the Lord Jesus offers us this morning. And it's here, prefigured in the passage before us. We don't need to carry around our sin any longer. We can give it to the Lord Jesus and let him carry it. All our sins and griefs to bear as we sometimes sing in the hymn. I wonder if you know that to be true for you this morning. I meet so many people in the course of my ministry, and I'm sure you know this as well, people who are struggling with the burdens of something they have done in the past. It doesn't need to be like that. Because the Lord Jesus uh, bore our sins away in his body on the tree, 
Uh, We can give him the burden of our sin and receive his easy burden of grace and forgiveness. My friends, I want to encourage you. I wonder if that's something that you know to be true for you today. It might be that there's something in particular that is snagging away at you. It might be something from the very dim and distant past. It might be something that actually nobody else knows apart from you and the Lord. Uh, Don't leave here without knowing the assurance of forgiveness. And not just of forgiveness, but an easy conscience as well. The Lord Jesus is both the sacrificial offering, but also the scapegoat who bears away our sin, that we not need to carry it any longer. Come and speak to me, perhaps, if you want to. After service, I'd be delighted to pray with you. But know the truth of this passage, that the Lord Jesus has removed sin from us. He has taken it on us. He has borne it in his body, that we might bear it no longer. The Day of Atonement was at the heart of the life of the people of God. Why was it at the heart of the life of the people of God when so many other ceremonies might have been? It was because they recognized that it dealt with the deepest needs of humanity. The need to be cleansed, the need to be forgiven, the need to be reconciled with a holy, perfect God. And wonderfully, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, all that it promised, all that it looked forward to has been completed and fulfilled. We have access to the very presence of God himself through his blood. So let us approach him boldly, trusting in his finished work and finding his mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you that it's by your finished work on the cross for us that we know that all that this chapter looked forward to has been uh, accomplished. We praise you that you are the perfect sacrifice for sin. It's by your blood that we are cleansed. Without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. And yet we know that because blood has been shed and perfect blood, we have been perfectly forgiven. And we thank you that you have borne in your body our sins. You carry that burden so that we need carry it no longer. Thank you that you, uh, on the cross, the Lord laid on you the iniquity of us all. And we pray this morning that we would know the truth of uh, that finished work deep in our hearts, by your spirit, you would uh, write it uh, deep within us, that we would uh, be able to approach you boldly without fear, we would be able to come to you to ask for cleansing and forgiveness, and we would live in the light of that forgiveness for all of our days. Help us, we pray, by your spirit, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.